Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, April the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Cormac McQueen are here to look back at the stories of the week. Good morning to you both. Hello, Hugh. Morning, Hugh. Pat, we are rolling in money, and by we, I mean the Irish nation and the Irish state. More exchequer figures in, in today. What are they going to do with it all? Well, this is the, I was going to say it's a $6 million question. It's a $10 billion question, uh, Hugh, because the figures that were published this week as part of the Stability Programme Update, which is a document that has to be sent to the European Commission uh, uh, under EU budget rules, showed that the uh, on a no-policy change basis, and we'll come on to talk about that aspect of it in a little while, uh, I guess, the general government balance, the GGB, uh, and, and we will use... The GGB, and this is for all the government accounting nerds out there, we will use the figures for general government balance rather than the exchequer surplus, which is a slightly different thing um, because we want to stay in tune with EU rules ourselves, Hugh. Uh, The general government balance at the end of this year is scheduled to be 10 billion euros in the black. Bluntly speaking, that is a 10 billion euro surplus of income over government uh, expenditure this year. Next year, again, on a no policy change basis, it's it's uh, estimated to be 16 billion euros. The year after that, 2025, 18 billion. And by 2026, if there was no policy changes made uh, between now and then, which of course there will be, the surplus would be 20, almost 21 billion euros. Now, Look, a bit of context, because people can get lost in what Michael Noonan used to call the millions and billions. Uh, it costs about 100, give or take, depending on how you measure it, it's about 100 billion euros to run the state every year. So to be running a 10 billion euro surplus is really remarkable. Most countries run at a slight deficit, um, but we're running these enormous surpluses. So the wheel, of course be a heavy pressure to spend much or all of that money. So the money comes from what is described sometimes as the windfall of the high level of corporate tax from foreign direct investment here. Well, all of it does really uh, in, in, in the sense that, okay, so there's a, a number of different revenue sources go into the, uh, you know, go into government's income column so I suppose, you know, you, you can't necessarily disaggregate, well, this part of the surplus is from that or that part of the surplus is from the other. But actually, in practical terms, right, we have these big surpluses because corporation tax has rocketed over the last number of years. They expect to bring in 24 billion euros in corporation tax uh, this year in the recent years, it has significantly exceeded all the projections. My guess is that it, it goes above 25 billion euros 
uh, this year. Just for comparison's sake, 10 years ago, it was, what, about 4 billion euros. So to get this massive surge uh, in it is something that is um, remarkable, that is unforeseen, but also is concerning the mandarins in the Department of Finance to the extent that they don't believe that it will last. And what they are suggesting uh, at the moment is that about half of it could be what they call uh, windfall in, in nature. That is to say, at some point in the future, half of that tax, uh, half of that, uh, th- those incredible tax revenues could begin to, uh, to peter out. Now, there's a long and not exactly honourable tradition in Irish uh, budget making and bank bailing out uh, to pluck figures from you know where. And I have a strong suspicion that this 12 billion euro figure, uh, windfall figure, is, is, uh, uh, comes from a, a similar source. But there's no doubt that uh, there is no... What, what we can say with certainty is that there is no guarantee that these revenues will continue and a high likelihood that they will diminish uh, in the future. So therefore, the policy trap, I suppose, for the government would be to increase recurring spending uh, on the back of these revenues, which would then leave you with a very significant shortfall if and when these revenues begin to diminish. In layman's terms, then, while you're talking about, well, then you would have to be looking at budget cuts to account for the fact that you no longer have these revenues. So the government is determined, certainly the two budget-making ministers, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath, are determined not to fall into that trap. But of course they will face huge pressure from their colleague ministers, but also from the other parts of uh, the political system to spend some of this money when, as lots of people will point out, there's a glaring need for increased investment in many areas. Indeed, and and again, and we've talked about this before that the the danger, and we've seen it in in past political and economic crises in Ireland, of committing to recurring spending on the back of revenues which proved to be temporary or fragile. Most most spectacularly in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when the the revenues coming from the property industry in general just just collapsed. Sure. Um, so that taken on board, though, my my question still kind of stands. Even even if you say no. Do not, you know, do not do the bad thing. Do not commit to recurring spending on the basis of these, uh, of these revenues. There's still no shortage of things that the state needs to do uh, on the capital side, which are, by definition is one-off expenditure, infrastructure, housing, the whole shebang. Sure, but bear in mind that the state, the state is spending more on capital expenditure now than ever before. The capital budget is something like twelve billion uh, for this year, and there are very significant constraints on spending that money because of capacity within the construction sector. Plus dangers of inflation, presumably, as well. Exactly, exactly. You look at things like the children's hospital and that, and the state doesn't, in many instances, doesn't have a good record of hitting its budgets or of getting getting value for money. That having been said, look, there is, you know, I think it's very clear that we are on course for another very big giveaway budget. What I would expect... Uh, well, what, what I would expect to happen is that you will get um, a significantly expansionary budget that will grow public spending, but not much beyond the level of trend economic growth. So not much beyond 4, 5, 6%, uh, I guess. In tandem with that, 
just as we had this year, what I would expect is significant one-off measures. Now, last year they were... Uh, there was four or five billion in the budget of one-off measures uh, which were designed to deal with cost of living crisis. I suspect we will see something similar, which will enable the government to both spend a lot of money, but keep some sort of a, uh, a lid on growing its recurring spending. And thus, and I also, I, I also think... Uh, what you will have is, you know, there will be additional transfers to the rainy day fund, which already has six billion in it. There's another two billion due to go into it uh, later this year. I suspect that will happen. The ceiling on that, which is currently eight billion, may be raised. And also, Michael McGrath is talking about a separate fund, a sort of rainy day Mark II fund, to deal with things like, you know, future pension uh, expenditure. So I think there will be a whole array of devices to essentially take money out of the, uh, to take the, the punch bowl away just as the party is, uh, uh, is threatening to get started. But you will also have, because of the scale of these surpluses and of the general robust health of the public finances, uh, there will be uh, an opportunity to both put money away for the future, but also to have a, a very significant, let's not forget, pre-election giveaway budget. There is that, Cormac, isn't there? And while, you know, pious types, including myself, might, you know, point at something like the the way in which Norway has built up this massive sovereign wealth fund on the back of windfall profits from the oil industry, much bigger windfall profits, it should be said, over over a longer period of time and how the how valuable the rainy day fund might be in in the case of another economic downturn or indeed a really significant rise in interest rates, because let's not forget that we are also still a highly indebted nation. The reality is we're a year and a half at most out from an election and the temptation to um, to spread the sweeties around is going to be there, isn't it, Cormac? I think, you know, the, the smart bet right now is put money on it. October 2024 election, uh, within weeks of budget 2025, when, when you know, the government will have, will no doubt have hoped to have unveiled tax cuts for the squeeze middle, you know, welfare increases, sustainable ones, of course, but given that the billions are still expected at that time, you know, that it would be very hard to resist calls for pension increases and all the rest of it. And they will want to take full advantage of whatever bounce they get from from what is in all likelihood going to be a very feel-good budget. Um, we saw last year with the, the big 11 billion euro budget that they, that I think in our polls, the, the government parties had a had a, a bounce. They enjoyed a bounce uh, shortly afterwards, but that had kind of dissipated by uh, by early this year. Uh, so you know, the, I think the chances of the government going full term to early twenty twenty five are are slim and none now that we have, we have some sense of the scale of of the money that is coming uh, their way uh, for for budget twenty twenty five. Is there a danger here for the current government parties, which is that, I mean, we used to hear in the past, and we still do sometimes about, you know, one of the problems of of Ireland being sort of private wealth and public squalor, that, you know, the, the, the public domain is not as developed as it used to be for historical reasons, possibly going past decades, the standard of our public transport, the fabric of our cities, the nature of our, our health service, all those types of things. And that it becomes difficult for the party in power to defend those things even more when they're also rolling around in cash so obviously at the same time. Well, yeah, it's, it's very hard for the public to understand how, how there is substandard public transport or, you know, the, the streets are looking pretty shabby in, in, in Dublin city centre when, when there is this all this money sloshing around the coffers. Um, I, I guess a lot of it's down to, to how it's used, but also uh, kind of hurdles in the system. I mean, 
the you know you're talking about capital projects that could be, could be progressed uh, metrolink being the obvious one in dublin uh, but you know the between the the getting through the hurdles in the public spending code and then actually you know tendering and getting contractors in place these things take an awful long time so not something like that is not going to be done in time for an election or even progress significantly beyond where it is at the moment i mean the the tangible things that they will be able to show with with this money is measures that that uh, affect people in their pockets so it is the tax cuts it's the welfare increases it's the the cost of living measures it's the cuts to to childcare costs you know the cuts to school costs things like that um these are the things that they they will uh, they will want to to bring to the table uh, as as pat says once off measures of the kind that we saw last year uh, perhaps uh, they will become a, a feature of budgets from now on, it's it's something that the government can say. Well, look, we're doing this. We're we're not going to be adding to the balance sheet every year. This is once off, but uh, but here's here's a here's a little sweetener. Uh, it seems particularly likely ahead of an election, of course. What would the chances be then, Pat? Do you think of significant tax cuts in advance of the next election? They've, significant cuts have been off the agenda for for a very 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 long time, but you could see Fine Gael in particular seeing them as an important part of a pre-election package. Yeah, there's a tax package of about a billion euros um, last year. I think something similar the uh, the year before. People would have seen a marginal decline in their uh, in their tax bills. Although that's offset by inflation as well, because they they, sure. they tended to move move up the scales. My guess is that Fine Gael will want to do uh, a significant tax move in the forthcoming election. What shape that may take. I don't know. Veradkar has talked about the 30% rate uh, in the past, a third rate in the middle of the higher and the lower rate. Um, that would certainly have the benefit of being easy to understand. Um, so, you know, I, but, but I don't know what sort of... Uh, I, I know that there is no enthusiasm for that uh, in the rest of the uh, coalition, but Veradkar has mentioned it on a number of occasions. I suspect he will give us... Uh, Hints as to how he's thinking uh, during the dog days of uh, of summer when uh, Cormac and I and other people are scratching around for stories to fill empty pages. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear uh, Mr. Radker's thoughts on what should be in the budget uh, at that stage. That certainly has been the um, that certainly has been his practice in the uh, in the past. But I suspect that they will want a a, a, a big a big tax a big tax move um, that is easily understood, uh, that people can see uh, in, their, uh, in, in their wage slips. And if they're going to do it, they need to do it in the next, uh, the next budget. Another significant issue that will undoubtedly have a major impact on the result of the next election, Cormac, is this proposed redrawing of the boundaries in order to accommodate a larger number of TDs. Some people might ask why we need more TDs. The reality is because the Constitution requires it. So the number of TDs in the Dáil is going to go up and along with that, therefore, there needs to be what I think is probably almost certainly going to be a very dramatic redrawing of constituency boundaries, which of course causes all kinds of conniptions among TDs themselves or people hoping to run for the Dáil. And we have a story in today's Irish Times about some of the concerns expressed by our elected representatives about this. 
Get your uh, political anoraks out, guys, uh, to, on the maps, uh, because this is going to be a feature of, of politics in you know, Leinster House up till the end of August, I guess, which is when the, the Electoral Commission is due to report on the, the boundaries. Um, you know, the population has gone up over 5 million. Uh, there's supposed to be one TD for every 20,000 to 30,000 people. Um, most of Ireland's constituencies exceed that at the moment. So there's going to be more TDs for a start. They're looking at between 171 and 181. That's up from 100. 60 as it is as it stands at the moment uh, but then that uh, creates uh, the the problem of well where where do you put these extra seats so uh, people have to get the calculators out look at where the population has risen and uh, and redraw the maps this of course causes major concerns for for our TDs and senators who would like to be TDs uh, because you know they're they're making suggestions as to as to how they would redraw the maps I suppose um, one one feature of the submissions we've seen so far is that they they very much do not want county boundaries breached in the way that they have been in the past. Uh, the now independent TD Mark McSharry uh, being primary among these, he, sa- he says that the idea of uh, you know st- stitching together different several different counties to make one constituency should be permanently abandoned. He's thinking particularly of his Sligo Leitrim uh, constituency, which not only contains those two counties but also uh, parts of South Donegal, parts of North Roscommon. Um, I've, I've, I've kind of described it before as kind of a Frankenstein constituency in a way, and it's, he, he does have a point in in trying to stick to the county boundaries. That's not always very easy to do, though, uh, when you're when you're looking at the population levels of various places. But then you have other other representatives like uh, Senator Malcolm Byrne down in Wexford. He was briefly a TD, uh, having won a by election there in 2019 before losing the seat in 2020. He's based in the north of the county. Uh, Wexford would, in theory, be due another another seat due to the population rise. He's suggesting three new constituencies between Wexford and Wicklow. One, one North Wicklow, one Mid Leinster, which would include South Wicklow and North Wexford, uh, and one uh, then the rest of Wexford. You know, that, that could potentially benefit a, a Fianna Fáil candidate trying to run in the North of the, north of the constituency. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it also, they, they, the politicians who've made submissions do have genuine points that the population uh, rises in these places do warrant extra seats. So it's, it's one to keep an eye on. It can make a break. A, a political career, as uh, Fine Gael's Noel Rock learned in the last election, when he he lost a chunk of Drumcondra to, uh, to Dublin Central, it helped Pascal Dunne, who got elected last time around, but he lost his seat. Uh, so you know it'll be very closely watched in Leinster House, and we'll be we'll be keeping an eye on the permutations. Astonishingly, Pat, both uh, Mark McSherry's proposal and Malcolm Byrne's proposal would benefit them electorally at the uh, at the next general election, as far as I can make out. Even though they're diametrically opposed in terms of Malcolm Byrne wants a um, wants a new constituency created between South Wicklow and North Wexford, so he doesn't hold with this uh, county county boundary thing. Um, is it all about <laughs> naked self interest in the end? <laughs> I'm afraid so. <laughs> I mean, of course. You know, people are going to make submissions that, uh, you know, that, that, that benefit them. And uh, I, I, I find it hard to imagine the political universe in which a TD is making submissions on, on boundary issues that, um, uh, you know, that, that disadvantage them. Uh, I would say two things. Um, one is that it's, I think, and Cormac, I'm sure, will back me up on this. It's impossible to overestimate the extent to which TDs are obsessed by this. They are all absolutely, talking about it uh, all the time, right? They are absolutely focused in it because in their mind, every one of them, they have, you know, a mental map of where their votes are, where, 
you know, areas that would that they don't want to lose out of their constituencies. To give one brief example, Michael Ring, the Fine Gael TD for, for Mayo, is looking for parts of South Mayo that got hived off into Galway, um, you know, to be returned to Mayo. There's about 4,800 votes there. Now, Michael Ring does not need those votes. He he did very, very well for himself in a, in a bad election for Fine Gael last time around. But it, it shows that even the, the, the king can be worried about uh, about his crown, I suppose, uh, and, and hoping that, perhaps hoping to, to shore up support. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's the, level, the level of interest among, among politicians is immense. The other thing I'd say, though, just to, just to finish the point, um, Hugh, is that uh, these, the decisions will be made by an independent body which is a very good thing. You see in the United States how politically inspired boundary redraws have not just, you know, carved up the country between safe Republican seats and safe Democrat seats. They've actually contributed to the acute polarization of politics in that country where the real contests are within the parties for the nomination rather than between the parties to win the election in uh, in many districts. So I think it's a really good thing that while the TDs can make as many submissions as they like, the decisions on this will be made by uh, a, an independent body that isn't trying to achieve any particular political advantage for anyone. Yeah, I mean, we'll let the politicians, you know, fight for their own uh, for their own rights. But from from our point of view, this can have a really significant impact on the next election, on the overall picture as well. Because um, there have been elections in the past where the the size of the constituencies ended up having uh, perhaps an unforeseen impact. I think of the nineteen seventy seven general election when the minister for local government uh, James Tully um, created a when you, we didn't have an independent commission created a lot of three seater constituencies in the expectation that. Fianna Fáil would get no more than one in many of them. Of course, Fianna Fáil ended up getting two in nearly all of them and got probably the biggest majority in the history of the state. Yeah, that we, we, look, we've talked about this before, that the mathematics of our electoral system function on a number of, 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 sort of, of sort of steps that work differently depending on the population, the strength of the vote, how many seats uh, in, each, uh, in each constituency. And, and, and that, can be, that can be unpredictable. In general... You know, smaller parties like bigger constituencies. They like five, they like four seaters and, uh, and five seaters because they have a better chance of, uh, of winning a seat with a smaller share of the vote in those, uh, in those constituencies. Small parties tend to find it more difficult in three-seat uh, constituencies. If you had an entire country of three-seat uh, constituencies, I guess you would have a doll that was much more dominated by the by the bigger parties but how these dynamics work themselves out on a local level is i mean it's quite it's quite hard to 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 give a national summary of what it would um uh, of 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 what it would mean because of the intensely localized nature of uh, of Irish politics but the general rule yeah is that smaller parties like uh, like bigger constituencies we're clearly going to be doing a mega podcast on this when it come when the, when the, when the map comes ah, out. It'll be a nerd fest. Can you imagine it? I can't What's wait. the time frame? <laughs> um, so they're, what they're waiting for is the the full results of the census. They're due to be published at the end of May. Then the commission has three months to uh, to do its review. So we're lo- we're looking at the end of August, start of September, I suppose, when this uh, when this this is finalised. 
Great. Listen, we're going to take a quick break now before we do. Let me remind you, as always, that if you don't subscribe already to irishtimes.com, I'm sure most of you do, but if you don't, really, you should consider it. Go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. That's irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Pat and Cormac are still here with me. Um, Pat, we talked at some length about Robert Watt and the investigation into the proposed secondment of former Chief Medical Officer Tony Holohan to Trinity College last year. Um, we talked a couple of hours before Mr. Watt appeared before an Oireachtas committee and it was quite an entertaining session. Yeah, um, I suppose showdowns between... Uh, Robert Watt and Iraqtas committees are becoming a fixture on the uh, uh, on the political political calendar. So he was in at the committee that shadows the Department of Finance, Public Expenditure, and the Department of the Taoiseach uh, on Wednesday. Gave quite a combative performance, I think it's fair to say. Um, disputed the findings of the report that he was there to discuss. Said he didn't agree. Uh, with with many of them, had a couple of clashes with various members of the committee, including the chairman, uh, John McGuinness. The hope was in government that this would put an end to the controversy over the botched appointment of Tony Holohan to Trinity last year. In actual fact, it's kind of done the opposite. Um, we're reporting this morning that the uh, committee is likely to invite in further witnesses, probably the author of the report, Maura Quinn, uh, probably the uh, Minister for Health, Stephen, Stephen Donnelly, maybe other witnesses um, as well. That's likely to be confirmed next week when the committee meets on Wednesday. So in other words, there's going to be another few rounds uh, to go on this particular uh, controversy, which is uh, certainly not what people in government wanted. Is it in any way serious, though? Do you know, I'm not sure it is, really. Um, I'm not sure how much it is breaking through to uh, to people outside. It, it, it is, after all, something that didn't happen. Um, the the appointment was abandoned. Uh, Dr. Hoon said he wouldn't uh, take it up after the Taoiseach had called for it to be paused. The amount of money involved, €2 million Euros a year, you know, Comparison to the sort of sums we were talking about in the earlier part of the discussion is pretty trifling. The Department of Health budget is 24 billion. This was 2 million uh, a year. At the same time, there is a uh, there is a couple of principles involved, according to people uh, that I've spoken to in uh, in government. Um, according to Miss Quinn, who wrote the report, though Robert Watt disputes this, the um, uh, you know the manner of the appointment being designed, its budget and all that fell significantly below what is best practice. The sense really that you get from the report is this was something that a group of senior officials thought was a good idea and decided to go uh, to go ahead with it without necessarily having the political clearance to spend the money. Again, say that, uh, that Robert Watt would... Uh, would dispute that, um, but that's more or less the the conclusions of uh, of the report. I think a different performance from Robert Watt at the at the committee. He's fully entitled to mount, however, uh, a defence. However, he sees he's he sees fit, of course. But I think a different approach by him would probably have closed off this 
we probably have closed off this controversy, but it's going to continue. And just because something isn't breaking through to the wider public doesn't mean that it it doesn't have a kind of a political importance uh, of its own. This is a Leinster House bubble story, but sometimes Leinster House bubble stories can escalate. Wonder, Cormac, I note there's a letter on the letters page of the Irish Times today from Barry McGovern, who some of our listeners may know is probably Ireland's greatest living exponent of the performance of the works of Samuel Beckett. And he writes that he writes about Samuel Beckett's novel, which is called What? By a, by a pleasant coincidence, and in which a character appears before a committee defending certain matters with regard to his dissertation on the mathematical intuition of the Visicelts. And he's examined for 24 pretty long, I can tell you, having read it, 24 pages by this committee who look as mystified by what by, by what is said to them. So, I mean, Barry suggests that this is a theatre of the absurd and that's the way it seems to me. It's a kind of, it's one of those things, you know, where people use that 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 Twitter meme of of the person eating the popcorn, watching proceedings unfold. And then that is how how to watch a, an appearance by Robert Watt at the Oireachtas Committee. I, I recall um, back in 2019, he was the, the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and he was to go to the Public Accounts Committee. He was overheard uh, by a journalist outside before going in allegedly saying to the committee chairman, control the mob. Uh, this, of course, was relayed to the, the committee members and reported before the meeting started and uh, all hell broke loose then at the start of the meeting. Watt claimed he couldn't re- recall saying it, but if, if he had said it, he was using it as a colloquialism and, and he apologises if anyone if anyone's offended, you know, and uh, and all the politicians then had a chance to, to get their digs in. Uh, so, you know, the, the latest the latest committee appearance by Mr Watt let us go down in a, in a, in a you know, a string of... Uh, of appearances over the years, he's he's one of these uh, larger than life characters. Uh, uh, one of the few uh, secretaries general of, of government departments that I think most members of the public would would know who he was, or a lot of members of the public certainly would know who he was. Um, you know, it, it was it was telling as well that you know Jack Corgan Jones reported the other day he was talking to committee members after the meeting that, that they were uh, just as confused afterwards about what had all happened as 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 beforehand. So uh, that that kind of ties in with that that uh, that letter about Samuel Beckett's novel. I think uh, in terms of the confusion and the, the model afterwards, and it, it was in that sense uh, probably a, a successful performance for 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 Robert Watt. So I'd just be interested on your thoughts on a story which is sort of on a related matter because it's about the relationship between um, elected officials and and uh, members of the civil service across the water in the United Kingdom just before we started recording this. It was announced that the Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary Dominic Raab had resigned after the publication of a report into an inquiry that he had systematically bullied and abused various people who worked for him in, in, in government departments. It's not the first time that's happened in in London in the last few years. Do we ever see that those kind of problems arising to that kind of extent in the, in the Irish political system? I mean, there are surely robust uh, conversations behind closed doors. Um, I can't think of a, a case of recent years where where we've we've had a minister accused of of outright bullying, and uh, there certainly is nobody's fallen their sword for for that reason, um, you know. But uh, it's it certainly would make would make you wonder about the interactions that that take place, and and if there are indeed uh, kind of you know people that feel a bit aggrieved about about how how they are treated, particularly if civil servants. Uh, dealing with uh, with ministers that come in with big ideas and that, and are very forceful about trying to to get them implemented. Pat, we, we I mean we live in a world of HR departments and rules about this kind of stuff that weren't around perhaps for for previous generations and politics is a tough 
uh, trade and being at the top of government is extremely demanding. Presumably, these kinds of, in these kind of highly pressurized situations, things do get pretty sharp and perhaps nasty sometimes. Yeah, sure. People, you know, have rows, shouted one another. That sort of stuff goes on. Um, I, I remember writing. Uh, I remember writing a, a story about one of the budgets during the period of austerity when the shouting between the public expenditure uh, minister and the line minister with whom he was having a budget bilateral was uh, audible to every uh, passing official uh, outside. There was another minister um, in in that government who I, I better not name who was um, certainly the Leinster House and uh, Civil Service rumour mill suggested was... Uh, was prone to all sorts of histrionics during uh, during meetings, and um, but I don't recall. Uh, maybe Cormac does. I don't. I don't recall any um, any formal uh, complaints uh, about uh, about that about that sort of thing. And um, and and I'm not sure it is a regular feature of uh, of life. By and large, I think you know people can kiss and make up after their uh, after their rows. And uh, I mean, I, I you know, I suppose this is sustained campaign of bullying against uh, somebody is a different thing to having rows uh, at meetings. But um, if 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 that does go on as between politicians and civil servants, it isn't something that has ever really come to light. Yeah, I wonder, I may be falling into cultural stereotypes here, but there is a certain British or English tradition of the bollocking, um, which seems much more ingrained in, in the way that they do business over there and perhaps doesn't work yeah, in the same I've way I've been here. trying to introduce it into the political team without uh, any success for some years now. That's because your pathetic <laughs> attempts to introduce it are undermined by the fact that you're just such a softy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, it is true. Um, moving on, as we um, as we always do on a Friday, we have a look at stories that caught our attention over the last week or so. Cormac, you can't avoid Elon Musk these days. Everybody's uh, favourite eccentric billionaire had had quite the day yesterday. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he's been accused of of burning money in his purchase of Twitter, the the forty billion he paid for it. Well. You know, billions literally went up in smoke uh, when uh, his his SpaceX rocket uh, Starship uh, launched from Texas yesterday, and and four minutes into the flight, uh, exploded over over the sea. Um, they you know they they called it a, a, a disassembly. I think was the way it was put. And uh, SpaceX are certainly not saying that the the mission was a failure. They they they're taking learnings from it. They're gonna they're gonna try again, but. Uh, Coincidentally, the same day saw Twitter remove the the infamous blue ticks from from uh, prom- prominent people, celebrities, uh, you know, uh, journalists, and uh, me, uh, and uh, Pat, yeah, myself, myself also, and I'm, you, I'm, 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 I'm de- my God, am I? Yeah, uh, yeah, you are. But yeah. okay. um, all right, <laughs> but uh, it's you know, I don't, that doesn't mean I'm off the Twitter though, does it? No. No, okay. Pat. I'll give you some. I'll give you some social media training. It just afterwards. means it's being easier for people to okay. impersonate you, I suppose. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean all, <laughs> there's all sorts of uh, drama on Twitter yesterday o- over that. Uh, interestingly, in terms of Irish politicians, our, our government ministers all got a, a grey tick, uh, indicating that they're government uh, people. But uh, but the opposition leaders all lost their blue ticks, from what from what I can tell. Uh, but you know, they're in good company. Beyonce, the Pope, uh, people who lost blue ticks. One person who kept it was the author Stephen King, which uh, seems to be a, a, an apparent 
bit to, to troll him since he wanted since he's been a critic of uh, Elon Musk's tenure at, at Twitter and uh, and Musk has uh, has indicated that he is he's personally paid for for some people to keep their blue ticks. Yeah, I'm going to set up a, a fake Patley here account as soon as as soon as, as, soon as we've uh, finished today. <laughs> I'm sure no one will pay any attention to that either, <laughs> as well as to the real one. <laughs> I'm going to choose my uh, my article of the week is actually in today's Irish Times. It's um, Harry McGee is writing about um, Eamon Ryan, the Minister for the Environment's um, dim view he has taken of of the expansive plans for the growing of Dublin Port over the next twenty years or so, new bridges and bits of new Docklands and and all kind of stuff and 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 Damon Ryan is asking whether this is actually commensurate with what you know what's likely to happen with climate action over the next twenty years or so, including a huge expansion of roll on roll off traffic um, through Dublin Port, which depends upon transport by lorries. And he's asking where's the train lines. To which I would also ask where are the train lines around Ireland that would get those containers around Ireland might be a question too. <laughs> but it, but it's um, it's an interesting example of something I think um, that is going to become more more salient where every political major political decision particularly when it pertains to to infrastructure um should at least be be measured against the climate action plans and i do wonder pat actually maybe let me ask you this is it always going to be down to eamon ryan to raise this and if eamon ryan and the green party aren't in government anymore will there be a sort of a blind eye turned well see the thing about what eamon ryan and the greens have achieved in uh in government is that they've they've put climate action on the statute books so that unless governments in the future change the laws, and of course, future government will have a dull majority, we presume, so uh, we'll be able to change the law if it uh, sees fit. But until that time, government departments must act to, they're bound by the law to act to, uh, to reduce carbon emissions. Now, how that extends to semi-state bodies under the aegis of government departments to be honest, I just don't know. Um, but the fact that... I Eamon, think that's a big question. Yeah, it is, yeah. But the fact that Eamon Ryan is writing to Dublin Port and urging them to uh, to do this and not calling them into a meeting and ordering them to do it suggests that the powers of enforcement on this stuff are uh, perhaps not quite as strong as they might be. I think that's going to be a major political issue over the next few years myself. What did you pick, Pat? Yeah, actually, on a sort of related uh, topic, uh, Naomi O'Leary's uh, piece in today's paper uh, about free transport, uh, free public transport in Luxembourg, which is uh, three years old, and um, was introduced uh, back then. It's been hailed by everybody as a, as a great success. However, what it hasn't done it appears is reduced private car usage so while the uh, it's been certainly been popular to make public transport free and i suppose you know this is again this is a debate that if we're not already having it we'll be shortly having uh, in uh, in this country i know the, the greens would probably like to do nothing uh, nothing more with that big fat surplus than make public transport free but what the and the other parties uh, in the Oireachtas of uh, including people for profit, have argued for it as well. But what the experience in Luxembourg shows that until you have much a much greater, more convenient, quicker modes of public transport available for people, they're not going to get out of their cars. And I'm pretty sure that's also, uh, that's also the case here. 
I agree. It's a very interesting piece by Naomi, and it does make the point, which I think is true, that price alone does not does not mm-hmm. fix the, fix these challenges. Uh, that will also be an ongoing story. I think you're right over the next while. We will leave it there, though, for today. Thanks very much to Pat and to Cormac for joining us. Uh, thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced the show, and to JJ Vernon, who engineered it. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed next week, but until then, have a lovely weekend. <laughs>